I heard this interesting story uh, a couple of years ago. Um, a little girl is watching one of her parents cooking uh, in the kitchen and notices that it kind of cuts a little piece off the top uh, of a chicken and off the bottom end just as putting it into the pan. And the little kid is like, why, why do you do that? And the parent thinks for a minute and says, well, you know, actually, I don't, I don't really know, but I, I got it from, from my mom. Maybe we should go and ask. So a couple of days later, they're, you know, chatting to the mom. Next thing, sort of the question comes up, well, what do you, what, what was the reason behind this? Like, how, how did this come about? It's like, well, you know, actually, I don't, I don't know either. I, I got it from, well, from my mom. So they, they decide, let's give great grand a call and have a chat. And, and great grand, do you, do you know what the story with this is? You know, we've, we found that it's been passed down a couple of generations and, you know, we're, we're curious. She packs out laughing on the other side and eventually when she stops laughing, she says to them, well, my dear, actually, you know, when I first moved into my first apartment and we were just starting out in our life, uh, we couldn't afford a lot of stuff. And we had a really small oven and a quite a small pan. And so it was mostly just to make the chicken fit. <laughs> to the oven. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think there's there's a lot of things like this. I, I kind of, I feel like it's a bit of a metaphor for some of the things that I found uh, both in my personal life, but also in my career. Uh, you know, we we kind of grab these things and, and, you know, it must make sense because the smart, wise old people are doing it. And uh, then you kind of, you know, dig a bit deeper, ask a few questions, often from the place of naivety of a young kid even uh, going, hang on a minute, why, why do we do that thing? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I like this the story of the the oven, but there's the the original kind of idea of cargo culting comes from um, I, I forget all of the specifics, but essentially there were a bunch of people living on an island, and the U.S. military set up an, uh, a military base on this island. Um, I think it was during World War Two or World War One, um, but basically a couple of years after this base had packed up and left, um, some people came back and they found that the the local folks who stayed on the island uh, had started basically creating these model planes and directing traffic and they had a runway and all of this kind of stuff. And the anthropologists who were there basically interviewed them and figured out that they were kind of associating the planes and this whole ceremony and all the rituals uh, with what provided the food. Um, and they've been doing this for many years, expecting obviously some kind of an outcome, um, which, you know, despite not having actually materialized, they continued to do. Um, and if you explore this a little bit further, it, it kind of turns into a very similar connection to, you know, kind of this chicken story. And many generations later, people are still kind of out there directing the planes or, you know, uh, making these little models, cutting the top of the chicken kind of thing. And it turns out that we've already now forgotten why, why did we start this in the first place? You know, legend and myth kind of pervades and yeah, we lose the origin of the story, I think. so. One of the uh, topics that we want to talk about today is like, how do we start going beyond cargo culting? But before we, before we go into that, let's talk a little about your, your background and, and, and your history. So 
who are you and what do you do and, and, and how did you uh, get to the place where you are? Yeah, my name is Cliff Hazel. Um, I hail originally from South Africa. Um, I've spent a number of years working across different product management organizations, uh, in telecoms, across finance, uh, various different things. Um, and most recently spent the last four and a half years at Spotify leading a team of, of coaches, uh, helping to design more effective organizations and systems of collaboration. Uh, the last couple of months, um, I've been sort of working with a variety of different companies in my private capacity. Uh, I go under the name of Cognition Group. Uh, the idea is basically, at the moment, it's just me, but in future, it will be more of a collaboration and partnership with multiple people, uh, where we kind of co-brand or co-facilitate uh, different discussions and conversations. Uh, the idea is that I don't know all the answers to everything, but with a broader team of people who, you know, we work together from time to time, uh, we, we can create a sort of a more complete kind of set of offerings or, you know, balance each other's skill sets out in different ways, so... What have been your most important lessons about like how to make organizations more more effective? Yeah. So one one of the things that I noticed uh, a lot of the time with people starting out, and I mean this was true for my own personal journey, we start out with um, this idea of we want to be more efficient, um, and usually when we say that we mean at the team level. So we're thinking about you know four or five to ten individuals working together to try to achieve something, and we go. Yeah, well, you know, if we could just be more efficient, uh, that would be fantastic. And so we borrow something like Scrum or we maybe visualize, use a Kanban system or, you know, whatever the tools are that make sense in that context. Um, and pretty soon we get to a point where we're, you know, we're, we're able to kind of fairly consistently deliver. Now, of course, this is a good thing. But if you think about kind of stepping back a little bit and probably, you know, this is different depending on the organization's size and the type of product that you build. But chances are that there are other fa other parts of the company that are involved in this. So maybe you have some sort of, I don't know, upstream, maybe a business department or some sort of market research. Maybe downstream you have sales uh, or, you know, those could be flipped around as well. Um, some sort of marketing, some sort of external, you know, partners to collaborate, maybe some finance people internally. Uh, or maybe if you build a more complex kind of technical product, maybe you have multiple teams involved in the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, and so we get really, really good at doing this piece over here. Our team is super efficient, but the end-to-end -end process is taking many, many months. Yeah. And so, so yeah, we end up locally optimizing a single team without looking at the bigger picture that we're like a part of. Yeah, and and even if we're not sort of sub-optimizing for the whole, we haven't actually considered the whole so much. And you know, this this was kind of the first sort of insight for me. Was like, hmm, we actually need to think more broadly about how the teams connect to each other and not just within the technology space, which is, I think, a common approach um, in a lot of kind of agile organizations. It came out of technology primarily. And so, you know, we can deliver the software really fast, but we're not connecting it to the customer needs. We can't ship it out to the customer. We're not getting the feedback loops. We're not validating. Uh, these kind of things were sort of some of the challenges. So, so essentially what you're saying is that us being able to write code quicker is not actually going to fix the issues or the problems that we're having with meeting customer demands or customer needs. Yeah. So I, I, I did some work with an insurance company in, back in South Africa, uh, and we, we sat down uh, with the, the client lead at the time and said, you know, so what, what's the goal here of this engagement? What are we trying to achieve? And he said, well, we, you know, we want to be more efficient um, at our software delivery. And so we did a bit of a sort of a, a sketch on the, the board, something kind of like a value stream map. 
from start to finish or from idea to customer value, we were looking at around 36 months. And when we started digging into how long the engineering part of that takes, we found that it was somewhere between six and 12 weeks. So my question to him was, you know, if we make this so efficient that it actually is fully automated, would this solve your problem of time to market? No. Okay, cool. Well, then we yeah. probably need to look in some other places, either as well or maybe even instead of. Um, and very often you find things, you know, waiting for some kind of project review board or make, waiting for marketing, uh, whatever it is. And not, not because people are kind of slacking off, it's just because we don't tend to be able to see these delays. You know, we, we optimize for the parts that are, you know, kind of obvious to us or that we can see. And if we're not looking at the whole, we tend to focus on the part. And So, so what's the alternative? How should we, how should we do, be doing this, this differently? Yeah. So I, I like to think of it as sort of in, in the terms of a value stream. Um, if you think of kind of all of the things that come together to produce some value for a customer, uh, so leaving aside for a minute, you know, how we actually validate that that's working, let's sort of assume for a minute that, you know, being able to do that as quickly as possible uh, gives us the opportunity to get feedback fairly quickly. So if we can go from kind of concept to cash or idea to value, something like this as quickly as possible, the way that we would need to do that is to manage for the flow across that value stream. Um, and at a fairly straightforward level, I mean, I'm talking about some sort of visual management tool, some regular interactions, some discussions with the folks who are involved. Um, before you even get into a lot of the kind of sort of problem solving or optimization of it, very often even just visualizing your workflow from end to end creates really interesting discussions about, you know, ah, oh, but I thought, you know, you guys needed this thing and, you know, but you need that other thing. And like in that whole discussion, you surface some of the the otherwise implicit assumptions uh, so we have, might have several teams that have their own like Kanban boards explaining what they're doing. And then uh, a Kanban board that's one level higher where you can actually yeah. see several teams working together. And that like that Kanban board might actually visualize the whole value stream. And yeah. then you can just see it split up into smaller streams that are each of the teams. Yeah. So a, a friend of mine a, has created this model called Flight Levels. Um, Initially, it was very heavily connected to Kanban, but these days it, it tends to be just talking about like flight levels as a concept. Um, and the idea is that you sort of think about the organization in, in sort of three layers or three levels. Um, you have operational at the, at the bottom. Um, you have in the middle, you have coordination, kind of handling, kind of coordinating stuff between multiple teams, between departments, that sort of thing. Uh, and at the top level, you have strategy. And the idea is not to say that any one of those levels is better than the other or more important. Uh, the metaphor is essentially if you fly low, uh, you don't see a lot of breadth, but you see detail. If you fly high, you see a lot of breadth, but not so much detail. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're, you're trying to kind of take into account at the top level, we're saying maybe we should move into new markets versus invest in this new technology platform. But in the tactical detail, it's literally how do I solve this kind of throughput challenge or is this the right technical implementation for the challenge we face right now? So you're optimizing for slightly different parts, but they all need to connect. Um, and I, I, I found very often that people, are, they have something kind of at the strategy layer, they have something at the operational layer, but the coordination piece is often very much missing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very hard to have a connection between where are we actually trying to go to and what is it that we do right now? And putting that middle piece into play and connecting it to the different levels is kind of the core of what I would say I would focus on in, in this kind of 
organizational if you have those kind of challenges. How far do we go? I mean, you can you can uh, take this path uh, until you get to like, okay, we need to optimize the value stream. We need to optimize the whole company. We need to optimize our industry. We need to optimize the like the at, at the governmental level, at the country level. We need to optimize at the world level, and then we get to the universe. We need to optimize the whole universe, and that can I think that would maybe like not help with our decision making anymore. <laughs> like, what's the good thing for the universe? Yeah, I, for some reason, it's making me think of a, it. I think it was a Tim Minchin quote. It says, if you open your mind too much, you, your brain will fall out. Um, it, it's, it's sort of a little bit like, you know, at some point you have to stop zooming out and going, well, what about the next level? Like, um, you know, abstractions are helpful and they're useful in terms of being able to understand something. But probably you don't need to boil the ocean in order to fix a problem within your company, um, you know, unless that is actually the challenge your organization solves. So, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's helpful to step back and think of the broader picture and see how things fit together. But I don't know, when you're 10,000 steps away from the thing that is actually what you're talking about, maybe maybe you've gone too far. So. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting to think about, like, if, like, uh, or do, do you see that there are scenarios or situations in which actually local optimizing a part of the company or, like, uh, locally optimizing the company, what I mean is like short-term versus long-term, for example, sure. makes makes sense? Or, or do we always just optimize for for uh, the big picture and the long-term? I mean, this this is probably one of the eternal questions. <laughs> I mean, it's it's both a philosophical one and perhaps like an organizational one. You know, do, do I care about human nature as a whole and the, the entire world or do I care about my needs right now? And I, I, I like this sort of, thing of like a little bit of a balance like if you think about um i made this this joke I, I think it actually comes from the beyond budgeting guys they talk about this this idea of you don't want to be in a situation where you have to uh, kind of prioritize again like eating and sleeping like one and then the other so you you actually budget you you allocate some of your time to one and some to the other so probably you need to do some short-term thinking and you need to do some long-term thinking um and Figuring out that balance will, you know, you will take, you, you will figure that out as you go. Um, but at least having sort of notionally some idea saying, okay, so 70% of our time we're going to spend on like the short term because right now we have some very real problems that if we don't survive this, we will not exist in the future. Uh, you know, take climate change as an example, uh, take, you know, going out of business, we have some sort of runway of, of money. Um but then we also need to think about the long term. And if we go too far in, in one direction or the other, we end up probably with some problems. So, yeah, balance a little bit, you know, 70-30 or 60-40 or I, I don't know what the right ratio for your company is. But uh, One way of uh, talking about prioritization is that it's also about choosing what you're not going to do. Mm. But often if you choose the things that you're not going to do, that means that you're like you're closing options. You're saying that like, hey, we're focusing on this. We're closing these options, and from an options theory point of view, that's actually not a good thing to do. You should keep all your options open as long as you can and decide as late as possible. So what I've been thinking about, like, how do you how do you get to that that you actually have focus, but you still keep like all the options open that you can keep open. So that, like, if yeah. priority number one doesn't work out as you planned, then you have the other options still available, and you haven't closed them. I think the important piece of that is that you keep the option open. If you've already bought and paid for the option or started working on it, you're not really keeping it open. You're actually you're you're, you're buying it right now. 
Um, and this is the key thing is like, it's okay to, to sort of keep it on a wall somewhere or on a list and say, you know, here are some things we may do in the future. But the minute when you start doing that, you lose the optionality. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the key thing that, that a lot of people forget about it. It's like, oh, we have all these thousands of people, so we have to be able to do lots and lots of stuff. It's like, sure. I mean. Yeah. But what is interesting, like uh, keeping options open also requires some amount of effort. It doesn't require like even close to the same amount of effort if you were, uh, if you're actually working on it, but still keeping them open is effort. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you have a long to-do list and you you talk about that in some sort of even a strategic level, you know, there's 25 things we need to discuss in every one of those meetings instead of spending the time on the things that are actually important. You know, hard questions to answer. But the the way that I I like thinking about this is to say, you know, l- let's be clear on on what is the top priority, uh, and let's make sure that number three doesn't block number one. So. As an example, like, I mean, we used to use this quite a bit at Spotify was this idea of this is the number one bet for the company right now. And I would come to you and say, can you help me out with something? And you say, okay, cool. Actually, I'm working on number one. So, and you're working on number three. So maybe I'm not going to help you right now. Or can you come back later? I need to focus on this thing. Um, It could also happen in reverse that way. But if you think about it as kind of putting the effort on the most important thing kind of down, obviously taking into account some kind of budgeting as i said before around the sleeping and the eating um yeah and try try not to be blocking the most important thing in your company based on someone is off doing some other thing Basically, what we've been talking about now uh, is is the context of teams. And and so that was one of your most important insights regarding how we can go beyond cargo calling. Uh, so basically understanding systems instead of just looking at single teams. Yeah. But so what's next? What's, what's after we understand systems? Yeah, so... The way I think about it is is that we we often start out with focusing on can we actually deliver the thing, um, at least in, in bigger organizations. I think if you start in a startup, often it, it, it's sort of a little bit different, but uh, bigger organizations, you'll often find a lot of challenges around just getting something meaningful done. Uh, we're doing too many things, that kind of thing. Once we get past that and we get into a point where we actually are capable of delivering, not only first in a team level, but then kind of at a broader organizational level. Um, Very often what we start to discover is that there are things that we are doing that are maybe not really achieving very much of the outcome that we were hoping for. Uh, You know, we launched this market, turns out mm, maybe not so many people signed up. Why is that? Uh, Probably not because of our failure to deliver because we have delivered and launched the product. But there's some kind of things inside there if we start to explore. Maybe, you know, we didn't build this feature or we didn't consider that factor or we didn't market it in the right way Um, many different things that can influence it and so the word i use for that is kind of becoming more scientific or using science to understand the kind of effect or the outcomes of what we're doing so get some data get some feedback is necessary but now you need to use it to actually guide and sort of direct where you go next um, so what does being more scientific mean in the in the context of organizations? If we want to be more scientific, how do we how do we do that? One one of the first things that I, I think is helpful with this is just to get in the habit of 
or to get in the habit at least of starting to write down our hypothesis. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I, I found that I, I do this thing where you you end up somewhere and you have a good outcome and you assume that that's because of the decisions that you made. Uh, there's this great book, uh, Annie Duke wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. Um, uh, she talks about this idea of resulting, uh, where we look at the results to validate whether or not the decision was good. Very often what you find is that um, her her scenario is that she she was a World Series of Poker player. Uh, she won a couple of times. She's you know world-renowned, very good. Um, and what she found was that people were kind of saying, oh, you know, I won this hand, therefore I must be a good poker player. Uh, and that those two things can actually be not related. Like mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. you could have just been lucky yep. um, or you could have made exactly the right decision and gotten Still, unlucky. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so by writing down the hypothesis, you start to get in the habit of explaining what your rationale for making this decision in the first place was. So you can say, if we do this, I or we expect that this outcome will be achieved. You can then inspect and adapt after you have delivered or once you have some resulting data and say, did we achieve what we wanted? Was that because of the decisions that we made or simply we, we got lucky? But when you start talking about science uh, or, or talking about a scientific approach, what that uh, to, to me that. Uh, for us to be doing science, we need to do like we we need to have st statistical significance in in the experiments that we do, and at least in my experience is that that's not often the case of the experiments that we run in organizations. Yeah, I, I think it's particularly hard. I mean, if you if you think about you know all of the great products that we have now, take the iPhone as an example. Like, you know, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. The 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 iPhone is so obvious, touch screens, all of these things, maybe not so obvious, at least not to the wider population in advance. So we end up in this sort of situation where if you have to try to prove the thing before you can do it, it becomes quite difficult. I'm, I'm not a scientist at heart. I don't have kind of formal training in that sort of stuff. Um, I, what I think is helpful from, from my sort of somewhat limited understanding of, of being scientific is that if, if you have a hypothesis that is impossible or there is no way that it could be proved wrong, uh, you probably don't have a very good hypothesis. This is more of just a belief or something. Um, you know, and this, this is part of the challenge of the human rationalization piece. And I, I would say if, if you want to get better at this stuff, there's a, there's a lot of great books out there that you can read and start to understand some of the stuff, especially in the data science space. But even just getting to the point where you write it down and intentionally check uh, that that starts to be much, much more interesting and you can have much, much better outcomes as a result of that. Um, what, one of the things that I think is interesting is when you when you start to write down your hypothesis behind why something, you know, why should we invest in this direction? Um, if, if you look into some of the stuff that uh, Don Reinison has done around cost of delay and uh, some of the the examples that he cites there, but you end up in a situation where if you start to say, okay, if we do this thing, my assumption is that we will be able to, you know, bring in a certain amount of revenue based on this number of customers in that market using this kind of a feature. What what you be able to do or what you become able to do as a result of this is that you can start to have a conversation about the data. So, for example, you might say, ah, oh, you know, actually, I think this market over here has more customers, or actually, that market that you're talking about probably doesn't have these many customers, or maybe they have more. Um, so you can start to have a conversation based off data rather than just our opinions. It's not I think this and you think that. It's here's the kind of yeah, yeah. the raw numbers. Um, but it also gives us the opportunity as, as we go, we can start to say, oh, actually, we started to launch in this market. We found that the uptake is much, much higher than we thought. 
maybe we should double down. Maybe we should ignore what was the second or third or fourth priority and keep our focus here. Maybe we should focus for longer. I think this kind of thing is super helpful because it gives us some kind of indicator. Are we actually going in the right direction? You know, if we don't have any of this, it's very hard to kind of gauge. We end up, uh, as Melissa Perry talks about in the escaping the build trap, this sort of idea of just shipping new things. Um, and it's it becomes all about the delivery. But the delivery itself, it's necessary, but often not sufficient uh, to be able to achieve the outcome that we want. If you deliver the right things, uh, yeah, you have, you yeah. have much better outcomes. Yeah, and I just think like I just like that also from the perspective of like how many meetings we spend discussing opinions versus just like getting even some data on the topic. But I think it's like it's a hard balance to strike because once again, I mean, you you can really easily get to the like analysis paralysis, but then also like only discussing based on opinions is also stupid. <laughs> so it's like striking a balance in between that you get data that is useful for your decision making, but then you have to get really quickly into the experiments and then like revising your decisions based on the the learning that comes from the uh, the experiments that you run. Yeah, but I mean, even if you just go out into the hallway, grab a couple of people, and say, you know. What's your take on this? Yep. You know, you're, you're not necessarily going to be able to tell, will your customer 100% buy this? But you'll be able to get two people understand the product. Does it make sense? Someone might look at it and go, mm, that, that wording is really confusing. Or the way that you're representing this sounds kind of odd. Or you yep. get different kind of things from everybody. And even a few small pieces of data or sm- a small sample set will give you some kind of guidance of yep. you know, what's happening. Yeah. So, and I think from that perspective, if we think about experimentation that we talk about in the context of, let's say, product development, it's not actually the same as like scientific experimentation, where uh, uh, from the viewpoint of like, once again, we we don't aim for statistical significance. That's not necessary because we can we can move forward with an experiment even if we if we have like very little mm-hmm. data uh, to support that uh, that. And and then what actually what do we do is we just like we adjust. The experiments we adjust, we also adjust the hypothesis uh, all the time based on the learning, yeah. and we're not actually focused on creating a report of our findings, <laughs> like yeah. that. Like that, that, that's the end result because the end result is that we learn and we actually change direction immediately. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're talking about how to go beyond cargo culting and, and what we've already talked about, we, we've talked about uh, how we need to just not focus only on the teams, but we also need to focus on systems looking at the, the whole value stream. Then we've talked about how we need to be more scientific with our approach, that we actually, we should just write down our hypothesis and, and, and try to validate the hypothesis and also writing down uh, our hypothesis also clarifies it for ourselves like what are we actually trying to trying to achieve here uh, so that's that's good what's what's next how do we how do we move even further beyond cargo culting yeah so I, I kind of describe this as, as sort of my my personal journey of learning is first we focus on delivery then we figure out how to build the right things now um, it, it, it sounds a little bit linear, but it's not necessarily one and then the other. It's a mm-hmm. little bit of yep. all of these things at one time. Um, but if, if you think about sort of the next stage, it was it kind of became a question of like, how, how do we leave an effective legacy? What, what is the thing that we want to have over the longer term? What's the thing that would pay the, the extreme long-term kind of value? And what I realized was that very often this is kind of in the space of, of human beings and the people. 
if you take example, like uh, I, I have folks that I worked with you know, many years ago, and now they've gone on to do all kinds of interesting things uh, because they're really smart, capable people, and they've had a lot of interesting support and great opportunities along the way. And realizing that those kind of small amounts of input that I was able to to help them with from time to time, at least my hope is that I was helpful along the journey. Um, th- that's something that really does, for the longer term, pay a more significant impact. Yeah. So, what do you think about the uh, the like basic uh, problem that we have around this? Is that we're, we're always trying to change others? That it's always the others who are wrong, and they, they're the ones that need to learn stuff, and and we need to be uh, we need to teach them instead of uh, thinking about how <laughs> we need to change. Yeah. I I mean, there's there's a lot of different things inside that, and the, I mean. It, it, it's it's hard because I think sometimes you can be in a situation where you've you've already walked a path or you you think you have the right answer and you've, if that person would just do this thing then suddenly you know magic and ponies. Um, the, the, the reality is that very often you know people if you think about your own personal learning journey, I, I spend a lot of time working with different leaders and I, I very often say to them, you know, think about this change that you're trying to initiate, whatever it is, some strategic change or organizational process or whatever it is that you're changing. You've spent, you know, six, twelve, many or more weeks thinking about this, discussing it, really understanding, unpacking it, internalizing what that means, and now you want other folks to jump on board with a single conversation. Uh, you know, we stand up in all hands and like, this is what we're doing, and then you know, obviously, this is not going to work. Like, you maybe you don't need to give them the same amount of time, but probably you need to give them something a little bit longer. Uh, and if you think about also like creating the space to be able to have those conversations, you know, it, it, it's a very different thing to go out and say, you know, here's what I think, uh, and this is what I suspect it might me- mean for you, uh, and then allowing people to say, actually, I'm not sure that I understand that, or giving them even some time to just kind of think it through, watch the video again, read the notes, you know, all of these kind of things. So, I yeah, I think it's th- th- there's many different facets to it. Um, Part of it is, for me, part of it is about understanding different types of human beings, and we all have different approaches. So some people are very auditory, some people are very visual, uh, some people like written, that kind of a thing. And so for me, part of it that's inside here is this thing of understanding maybe our own sort of biases and defaults, um, but also how other people respond to different types of information. So as an example, if um, whenever you communicate things, you always do it uh, verbally, uh, maybe you could consider sending out, I mean, even a slide deck, but also some notes or a written version. Um, maybe you'd have a video, you know, if people prefer to do something in smaller groups, don't do everything in big groups. Just trying to find some sort of a healthy balance between mm. those things. Um, another example of this is if you're asking people to weigh in on a decision, but you literally ask them in the meeting where you want to take that decision. Yeah. They've had no prior interaction yep. with the information. Yep. Send out your proposal in advance and yep. say, okay, for those who are more deliberative, go through and read, consider it, you know, don't have the meeting the next morning even. Like just give them some time to kind of kick it around and consider what what do I think about this? Um, you you want that that diversity of different inputs, not just kind of the snap judgments in the moment. Thanks a lot for your time, Cliff. It's been a pleasure.